years, our home church worship services were broadcast live on WCBI-TV. At 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings, the church would turn on the cameras, and what happened in the sanctuary is exactly what people saw on television. So now, you know, a lot of times people do some editing, and it's a week delayed or something like that, but at that time, our church services were live. Well, the format presented a little bit of difficulty because as the offering was taken, the cameramen really did not know what to do. They did not want to follow the ushers down the aisle to see what people were giving or if, or if they were giving or not, but they didn't want to keep the cameras only on the piano player or the organist who was playing the instrumental selection that was going on. They didn't really want to focus on the flowers, which is what they did during that period. They just put the cameras on the flowers, and, and that's where they stayed. And so one day, the tech director went to the pastor and said, look, why don't we try something different during the offering time? It, the, the television quality is really terrible during that time. It's just boring television. And so why don't, when the, when the offering is taken, during the offertory prayer, you slip out to the lobby and just give a greeting to the television audience to say, we welcome you today. Today we're going to be looking from Luke chapter 4 or whatever and, and just to do something to help us break up the monotony of that, of that receiving of the offering. And so they said, okay, that's what we'll do. And so on that particular Sunday, the very first Sunday they were going to try this new approach, during the offertory prayer, the pastor slipped down the back aisle and went to the lobby he sat down in a chair out there, and then the cameras were fixed on him, and he was about to say, welcome to, our, to those who are viewing. And so he, he began describing, hey, we're glad that you've joined us today. Anytime that you can join us in person, we would like for you to do so. And then they realized the flaw in their plan. Children's church dismissed at exactly the same time. And so as our pastor was sitting in the chair greeting people, we hope that you will join us in person when you're able to, and then a child ran right in front of him. And so he said, okay, now we, we're going to be looking today in Luke chapter 4, and then another one, and then another, and another, and then finally our pastor froze. He did not know what to do, and he said, and he just froze for about another minute and a half as the television cameras focused in on his awkward-looking face. As that video made its rounds throughout our state as I distributed it to other pastors, people began calling him to say, what happened? What were you? They were laughing and said, what, what were you thinking? And he said, I just did not know what to do. I just froze. I did not know what to do. What do you do when you don't know what to do? When you aren't sure what the next step is, what do you do? Your church, for the first time in 11 years, doesn't have a pastor today. God has closed the chapter which John and his family served here. A new chapter is coming, but not yet. What do you do when you don't know what to do? What, what do you do when you say, Lord, we, we're really uncertain about where the future is going to go and we, we're anxious about it in some sense? Well, we aren't alone 
in sensing some of that anxiety and uncertainty. God's Word has plenty of examples of people who were at various transition phases and they had to see what was going to come next. They had to discover what do we do when we don't know what to do. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to join me in Acts chapter 1 where we're going to look at a group of men and women who are at, at a similar stage where you and I are today in our church. Jesus, by the time we get to Acts chapter 1, Jesus already had died on a cross to pay the, sin, to pay the price for the sins of the whole world. He took all of the, the anger, the resentment, the lust, every sin that had been committed before him and since, Jesus bore so that he could pay the price to redeem lost sinners who would respond to his invitation to new life. He had been buried and he rose again victoriously on the third day. Scripture tells us that Jesus spent 40 days with his disciples after his resurrection. During that 40-day period, he gave them some additional lessons that he wanted them to know. He confirmed to them, hey, I really am alive. This is not a figment of your imagination. You're not, you're not just wishful thinking. Look, I really do exist. This is not some dream or hallucination. I am alive. And so for 40 days, Jesus spent more time with his disciples and then he gathered them on a mountain right outside of Jerusalem. And that's where we pick up the, the narrative that we're going to read this morning. Beginning in verse 4 of Acts chapter 1, Luke wrote for us, While he was with them, while Jesus was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise. Which, he said, you have heard me speak about, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. Now, Jesus said, look, now, men, you may not remember it, but I already have talked with you about what is about to happen. I promised you the Holy Spirit is going to come. He will be an advocate, a comforter, a teacher. You can read, if you're interested in this, John chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16. That entire passage happened with Jesus on the night it happened with Jesus talking with his disciples the night before he was crucified it's four chapters but it happens in a very compressed time period and several times in that passage Jesus said look at it's to your advantage that I go away the Holy Spirit is going to come he's going to empower you and so here in Acts 1 he reminded them of what he already had told them look the Holy Spirit is coming he's going to give you power then verse 6 so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? Are we about to experience freedom from this Roman oppression? You've risen victoriously. Now are you going to conquer this world in, in political power? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. After he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. 
Then when they arrived, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying. Then there's the list of all of the disciples there. Verse 14 says, They were all continually united in prayer along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. These disciples were at a transition period. The Lord and Savior, to whom they had devoted their lives, whom they had followed for anywhere from 18 months to three and a half years, now was ascending into heaven. He had completed the work that his father had sent him to do on this earth, and now he was unleashing them on the world. He was giving them this commission to be his witnesses throughout every known corner of the world. And yet, he told them to wait. He said right there in verse 4, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise. They were in an interim period. Why didn't Jesus unleash them immediately? Why did Jesus not say to the disciples, look, I'm going to ascend into heaven, and then I want you to go down this mountain, Side, and I want you to begin proclaiming the good news of my death, burial, and resurrection throughout all of the world. You start here in Jerusalem and then you just keep going. Why did they have a waiting period? That's one of the ideas that I want to talk about. When we don't know what to do, why does God give us this waiting period? Why in God's sovereignty did John not finish up last Sunday and then you have a new pastor this Sunday. Why are, you in it? Why are we in an interim period? Why are we at a stage where we're saying, Lord, we, we know that something new is coming, but we're not there yet. Why does God give us these waiting periods? They don't just relate to church. Maybe you're in a waiting period. Maybe you're looking for new work and the, the door just hasn't opened. Maybe you're trying to make a decision about a particular plan of action and you just haven't been able to get confirmation yet. Why does God put us in waiting periods? Well, I think there are two possible reasons. One, waiting periods remind us that we are dependent upon the Lord. They remind us that we need God to be able to function the way that he intends for us to. And so during this period that the disciples went back to Jerusalem, they would have the, the sobering reality of the commission that Jesus had given them to weigh heavily on them. He had just told this group of very economically poor people. Remember, they had forsaken their jobs. They had turned away from everything else to follow Jesus. And so their material resources were extremely limited. On top of that, modes of transportation during this day would have, been, would have been arduous and difficult and yet Jesus had told this small ragtag group I want you to get the message that I have, that I have risen to the entire world that thought would have staggered these disciples. They would, have, they would have fallen backwards. Their knees would have buckled. And so this waiting period reminded them, if we are going to be able to do what Jesus wants us to do, he's going to have to help us. He's going to have to empower us. That's why I think waiting periods are really good for churches. Churches sometimes make the mistake of thinking, we know how to do church. 
We've got our meetings. We've got our services. We have our classes. We have our organizations. We have our committees. We have all of these things. Really, we just put the key in and turn it, and things just keep right on going. We don't know anything about church apart from Jesus' help. And waiting periods often are those sobering reminders for us to say, Lord, if our church is going to be what you want it to be, you're going to have to help us. Yes, we can have a full calendar of activities. We can have a full slate of meetings. We can launch some events. God, there are lots of things that we can do. But if we are going to be in the center of what you want us to do, then you are going to have to help us. Waiting periods remind us that we are dependent upon God. And sometimes when we're not in waiting periods, we lose the awareness of our dependence. We just operate and keep right on going, and then all of a sudden there's, wait a minute, we need to check with the Lord on this. Before he passed away, my dad liked to pick up scrap metal. He had retired from his restaurant business, and so to get some exercise, he started picking up aluminum cans. My dad would walk 8 to 10 miles a day picking up aluminum cans. And then people realized, wait a minute, Don's got some extra time on his hands. He's taking these aluminum cans, you know, full trailer loads down to the scrapyard. Maybe he would get my washer and dryer that I don't want anymore. And so then people started calling me and saying, look, hey, I've got, a, I've got a dishwasher or a stove or something like that. And so Danny would just drive around during the day looking for scrap metal. If, if, if you, it might still be working in your house, but if the door was unlocked, he would just go get it, load it up on the trailer and take it off. He, he became so well-known in the Golden Triangle, West Point, Starkville, Columbus, for picking up scrap metal that Columbus Air Force Base called him repeatedly when they were tearing down hangars and had scrap metal Mississippi State called him the W. I mean, he just would pick up scrap metal all the time. Well, when he would be out making his rounds looking for scrap metal, Danny would drive his pickup truck down to the last drop of gasoline. I know some of you do the same thing. You see the orange light in your car come on and you take it as a personal challenge. You say to yourself, you know what, that orange light's on, but I think I can make it. I'm only going up to Alaska. I think that I can just get there if I just keep right on coasting. Well, that's what Daddy did. And my mother continued to say to him, stop doing that. You are out on all of these back roads in the county picking up scrap metal, and one day you are going to run out of gas, and nobody is going to know where you are. I know exactly how much gas is in that truck. I know exactly when I need to stop and get gas. And my mother kept telling him, please buy gasoline. It does not cost any more to buy it when you have a quarter of a tank as when you coast in on fumes. But Daddy would never do it. One day, my mother's cell phone rang. And on the other end of the line was my dad. <clears throat> can, can you come pick me up? <sighs> Where are you? <clears throat> well, if you uh, go out Highway 46 and you turn on the third gravel road, there's a little grassy path off there. And if you see that goat, that's where I am. And so my mother would not even go to the back and get the gas can. She said, I'll come get you, and I'll bring you back to town, and then it'll be up to you to figure out how you're going to get your truck back. 
Daddy never ran out of gas again. That experience shook his confidence and made him aware of his dependence. See, that's what interim periods can do for churches. They can be really good for churches because they can make us say, you know what? We have been just sailing right along. I can't even remember the last time I prayed and asked God to help me with this or that. We just, we just do what we do. Churches can do a lot of activities. But I make this statement as boldly as you want to take it. No church is on the agenda that God desires for that church to be on unless they are praying. And so waiting periods often are those periods when we say, Lord, this is, man, this is a time that we really have to lean on you. They remind us of our dependence upon God. But also waiting periods are good because they can cause us to seek direction from God. There's the sense of, God, we, we can't carry out what you want. In fact, we don't even really know what you want us to do. And so, Lord, we are turning to you for you to give us the next step. In this passage, notice that Jesus did not tell the disciples, hey, here's when the Holy Spirit is going to come. He did not tell them to circle a time on their calendars. He did not say, look, you, you be at this place at this particular time because that's when the Holy Spirit is going to come. Nor did he say, after the Holy Spirit does come to you, here is the strategy for going from Jerusalem to, to Judea, to Samaria, to the remotest parts of the earth. He just said, here's what you're going to do, and it will be up to you to seek me to know how all of this is going to be carried out. And so these waiting periods, these interim times, also are good for us to say, Lord, we don't know what the next chapter holds but you do. And so we are coming to you for you to guide us. Right now, we're kind of in the darkness a little bit. No one really knows exactly how the next few months or, or year is going to go, but God does know that. About three years ago, I was speaking at a youth camp in Florida, and it just so happened that the week of camp coincided with the College World Series out in Omaha, Nebraska. And so Mississippi State was playing in the College World Series that year and, and the evening schedule was going to allow me about 45 minutes to watch one of the baseball games. We had dinner at 6.30 and the worship service was after that. After the worship service, all of the students went to their small group times and then we would come back together later for the late night activities with the games and recreation. And so I didn't have any responsibilities during that small group time, and I thought, I will race back up to the room and I will watch some of the, the baseball game that evening. But I made a mistake. When I went downstairs for, for dinner, the sun was still shining. You know, it was beaming in through the window. The whole room was bright. But by the time I got back up to the hotel room, the sun had set and the room was completely dark, pitch black. And so I, after the service, I raced upstairs. I slipped the key into the hotel uh, lock and then opened the door and went running in. Bam! Right into the bed. Do you know why God created your toes? So that you can find the furniture in the darkness. I do want you to know that when I bumped into the bed at full force, I only had godly thoughts. 
I didn't say anything bad. I just, amazing grace. Lord, you're wonderful. Now, do you know why I went racing in and hurt myself? It's because I, I did not have the light to know where I needed to go. If earlier that day, if I had thought, hey, when I get back into this room, it's going to be dark. I need to turn on a lamp by the bed or leave the bathroom light on. Even if I had turned on the television, I would have, I would have had enough guidance to know, hey, this is how I need to go, and I wouldn't have gotten hurt. That's what waiting periods do for churches. Waiting periods, when we seek the direction of the Lord... We say, God, you're going to have to help us because if, if you don't, we are going to run slam into something and we are going to hurt our church. And so, God, we are seeking your direction. As I said earlier, not a person in this room really could accurately predict, here's where our church is going to be in June or September. Nobody in this room could say, I already know who our next pastor is going to be. But God does know. God knows where that man is preaching right now. God knows what needs to happen in his heart to be ready to come here to serve as pastor. God knows that, that, that man's wife's ties to the community where they live. And he knows the work that is going to have to happen in her heart to prepare her to move with her husband to union. God knows that man's children's children. He knows that they have friends at school and that they're going to have to make an adjustment to come here. And so we begin seeking, saying, God, we want you to help us know who that next pastor is. We haven't elected a pastor search committee yet. But one of the things that I would be praying, that I already have prayed, is God, you know who is going to be on that pastor search committee even before we know who is going to be on that committee. And so, Lord, you, you now begin sharpening their discernment. You begin pouring wisdom into them in even greater measures. Because we want your direction. We want to know exactly what the next steps for us are. And so, Lord, you give us the direction that we need. See, that's why I think that God puts us in waiting periods. Rather than these disciples going down that mountainside and rushing into the city square in Jerusalem and saying, we have a, we have a word that Jesus is alive. He sent them back to that upper room where they would say, Lord, whatever unfolds, you guide us every step of the way. So those are a couple of reasons why I think God puts us in waiting periods. But what do we do while we are in those waiting periods? I think we get some instruction from this passage as well. The disciples did not just just sit and say well we know that the Holy Spirit is going to come one day and so I guess I'm going to go back fishing for a little while and I'll go visit some of my tax collecting friends no one action step that we take when we don't know what to do when we know we're in a waiting period is we we obey everything that we already know to obey 
The one word that these disciples had from Jesus is there in verse 4. This is the only thing that he had given them up to this point. While he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise. That's the only instruction that he gave them. And so, as he ascended into heaven, the angels appeared and said, Ben, what are you doing? Why, why do you keep gazing up into the heavens? Jesus is going to come back. Do what he told you to do. And so then there in verse 12, the Bible says, So then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. While we are in an interim period, in order for God to get us to the next chapter, we as a church and each of us individually needs to be obedient with what we already know God has told us to do. Is there a particular area that has been gnawing at you, nagging you, and maybe you've been procrastinating, say, I, I, I know that I need to do this, and one day I'm going to. Maybe there's been a specific way that God has been stirring a person's heart, and they're just waiting for the right time. If we are going to be able to move to the next chapter, we already have to be up to date on the obedience that we already know. Had these disciples not gone back to Jerusalem, had they just scattered, perhaps the, the arrival of the Holy Spirit would have been delayed. Wouldn't you hate to know that God had pressed pause on what he would like to accomplish at first union because you were disobedient? Because he said, there's something that I'm still trying to work out in the life of this individual church member, and she's just dug in her heels. She's not going to obey. That's all right. But we're not moving forward as a church until this issue is straight. And so we obey everything that we already know to do so that we can get the next instruction that God wants to give us. No one enters the, the ninth grade and then says, you know what, I'm tired of school. I'm just going to go ahead and move on to the twelfth grade. No, you first have to go through the tenth grade in the 11th grade, for some people, they go through the 10th grade and 11th grade several times. And then they finally get up there until they are seniors. Because there's a progression of the way that education works. There's a progression the way that God works. Sometimes we might say, God, hurry up. And he says, hey, you're not waiting on me. I'm waiting on you. Because until we get this lesson straight, until we get this particular area right, we're not moving on to something else. And so we obey what we already know to do. That's what these disciples did. Second, what do we do when we don't know what to do? We come together in unity. Look at what verse 14 said, says. They all were continually united in prayer along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. When they went back to this upper room... Specifically, Luke mentioned this unity. In fact, he did so again in chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. There's this sense of belonging to each other. Now, just a matter of weeks before this scene, these disciples were arguing with each other. They were boasting, saying, I'm the greatest of the disciples. I don't know who you think you are. I am the greatest of the disciples. And so they were bickering back and forth, jockeying for position. There are no arguments here. 
There's no jockeying for position here. They were all together with a spirit of unity, knowing if we are going to carry out what God wants us to do, we all have to do it. We all have to be together working in the ways that God calls us to be. Even though we're a, a diverse group of people, we have to be together. And so the application that I would make for our church is that during this waiting period, we should ask God to bring us together with an extraordinary sense of belonging to each other. And I'll admit to you, during the limitations of COVID, that is a challenge. I, I really am not certain that the breakdown of, of how the services have gone, but it would not surprise me if there isn't someone who's in the 830 service that you haven't seen in six months. Part of the same church, but because of the way that services have to be, you've lost touch with them completely. Maybe someone here has hard feelings toward another person. Maybe there's some resentment. Maybe there's been some jockeying for position and, and the other person won and now you resent that person. I'm just telling you, for the next chapter to be written the way that God desires for it to be, we have to be together. There's not any room for anything but unity. During my seminary days, I made a determination that I was going to be more proactive in meeting people. By nature, I am an introvert. Now, when I'm in a ministry setting, I can, I can kind of work up my resolve and say, hello, how are you, my name is. But if it were a non-ministry situation, I would be just as content to sit on the back row and not let anyone even know that I was there. But I wanted to try to improve myself, and so I, when I went to New Orleans, I said, I am going to take the initiative to meet people. And so the very first Monday night, that Monday night football was on, instead of watching the game in my room with my roommate, I said, you know what? I am going to go down to the lobby and, and just meet other people in the dorm room. And so I, I bounced down the stairs and zipped into the lobby, and a bunch of people were sitting around watching television. And I said, hey, what's the score? And they looked at me like I was speaking a foreign language, and they said, score? I said, yeah, the Monday night game. And I walked over and looked at the television. They were watching Star Trek. And I thought to myself, well, these are not going to be my people. But... I did work to try to build some connections with those people, and they did so with me as well. And the nights before really big exams, you would find this odd assortment of people all huddled in one dorm room studying together because we knew the difficulty of the exam the next day. And so we would help each other. We might be studying for a Greek grammar or Hebrew grammar or history of the Baptists or something like that. And so we would, be, we would all be there together. I mean, seminary is, is much more diverse 
than college in a lot of ways because you have multi-generations. You have some people. I mean, I went to seminary with some people in their 60s, and I was 22 years old. I mean, there's a lot of diversity. And so I, I can remember sitting in that dorm room with all of us working together to try to be ready for that exam the next day. And, man, just looking around the room, you would say, what are these people doing together? You had old people. You had young people. You had really, really bright people. You had people who had to work hard for their grades. You had cool, popular people. You had weirdos. I mean, it was just all this group of people. But together, we helped each other. Look around this room. This is a group of people that God has called as a church family. There are old people in the room. There are young people. There are people who have never spent a single year of their lives outside of union. You've had people who've moved in. You've had people that are really interesting to be around. You've got weirdos. But God has called us to be together. And if the next chapter is going to come the way that God intends for it to come, we must be together. These disciples said, look, all of that arguing about who's the greatest, no longer. Jesus is the greatest. And we follow him. So what do you do when you don't know what to do? You obey everything that you already do know to do. You make sure that we work to foster a spirit of unity and then finally we cultivate the power to be ready when the next chapter starts. Those who are coaches know that you have lots of preparation before the season begins. You lift weights, you learn plays, you, you, uh, you run and train. That's a waiting period, but it gets you ready for when it's time to perform. I don't know how long this interim period will be. I mean, it could be one very, very quick, or it could be prolonged. The statistics, statistics say that for every year that your pastor has served, you can count on at least one month of a search. If that's the case, this may not be typical, but if it is, you're looking at 11 months at minimum before a new pastor arrives. Can you imagine all of the good that could happen in 11 months so that when a new pastor does arrive the church is on an upswing well that's what these disciples were determined to, to have they were not going to say well when the Holy Spirit comes I guess we'll just you know start going and preaching no look at what the Bible says in verse 14 they were all continually united in prayer they said, Lord, you did not give us the deadline. You did not tell us exactly when. But we do know the Holy Spirit is going to come. And when he comes, we'll be ready. We are going to keep praying so that our fuel tanks will be filled. And when he sweeps into this room to give us the go-ahead to go tell everybody what you have done for us, we'll be ready. This waiting period can be the same for us. During this time, we can say, Lord, you make us ready so that when our new pastor arrives, our fuel tanks will be brimming and ready to go, and we can launch into the new chapter that you have for us. Steve and the musicians are going to come and lead us in a closing song. Now, when we dismiss from here today, it, 
it may be that there are some people who are in the room and you are you are wrestling with your own personal walk with Jesus Christ right at the very beginning of the message we talked about the fact that that Jesus had died for sins he was buried and rose again on the third day and perhaps as we've been talking together this morning you have thought you know I'm I'm not sure that I have a relationship with Jesus. When we finish this song, I don't want us to come together and, and have to speak close to each other with everybody a little apprehensive about that. But after the service, I'll be right down here on the front row. If you have questions about how to begin a relationship with God, I'll be glad to talk with you about that. Corbin, I think somewhere up running camera, Steve will be glad to talk with you. We would love to introduce you to how you can begin walking with Jesus. If you already are a church member, and you say, man, this is a waiting period for us, but I want to be a part of God's working in our church during this waiting period so that we'll be ready. Would you just pray with me that, that whatever God shows me I need to do as a church member, that I'll do it? Or, or, or do you have some suggestions about, about ways that I could help? I'll be glad to talk with you about that as well. Let's all stand together. We're going to sing together, and then we'll be dismissed.